Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of So I Married a Horror Fan. This is episode number 44. Woo! 43? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's 43. Is it? Yeah. Is it? It is 43. Yeah. Right. I don't know why I thought it was 44, I was jumping ahead in an episode. You Whoa. Um, so yeah, this is episode number 43. Uh, I am one of your co-hosts, Simon. And I'm Lee. It's your boy, Spooky Hummus, coming in. Oh, for fuck's sake, I can't wait for that to die. <laughs> hummus will never die. Um, do you know what? I don't actually know what hummus is. Are you serious? Yeah, it's like a dip, but I don't... Is it like a vegetable avocado. dip? Avocado. No, no. Yeah. Avocado's not hummus. Yeah, hummus is made from avocado, babe. No, guacamole is made oh. from avocados. Then I think it's chickpeas. Yeah, hummus, hummus is hummus is like that dip that you get. You can I get know. it and like people put pita breads and stuff in I it. I think it's made with chickpeas. Yeah, chickpeas. Oh. Garlic, tahini and olive oil. There you go. Oh. Yeah, no, I think no. I've got, sorry. There you go. I got got a little bit of a <clears throat> little bit of a food tech lesson as well. There you go. So uh, this is episode, yeah, as I said, number 43. What are we talking about on today's episode? Today we are talking about the 1987 classic and my mum's favourite film, Hellraiser. Otherwise known as, its working title, Sadomasochists from Beyond the Grave. <laughs> or alternatively, what is the original title? Something Heart? Hellbound Heart. Hellbound Heart. Or, alternatively, it's a title suggested by a member of the crew, a female member of the crew, What Women Will Do for a Good Fuck. <laughs> I mean, this this movie that tickled me when I saw that. I was like, "That's amazing." I mean, yeah. Should we just get into it? Yeah, sure. Let's go. Okay, so cast-wise in this film, we have. Oh wait, hang on. Let's start from the beginning. Director and writer and is author of the original novella. Yeah, is Clive Barker. Based on the book by, written Clive by, Barker. starring. Clive Barker, soon to be a motion motion picture, starring Clive Barker. Yeah. Yeah, basically. And then cast wise, we have Andrew Robinson as Larry, Boo. Claire Higgins as Julia, Yay. Ashley Lawrence as Kirsty, Sean Chapman as Frank, Boo. Oliver Smith as Frank the Monster, slash Skinless Frank. Skinless Frank. Uh, we have, hang on, I'm just trying to scroll down to all the people that don't matter. Doug Bradley as lead celibite, a.k.a. Pinhead, a.k.a. a.k.a. Leather Daddy. Daddy. Uh, Nicholas Vince as Chattering Celibite. Simon Bamford as Butterball Celibite. And then Grace Kirby as Female Celibite. Also, uh, her nickname on set was Deep Throat. Nice, yeah, because she's yeah. got the hole in her throat, isn't she? Yeah, she does. She has the, the hole in her throat. Nice. What's the synopsis for this one? I'm excited to see what IMDb says. It's quite a long one. one by the looks so I have to I have to hit read more, which is weird for IMDb. Uh, so it says Oh, so this was written by somebody. I think they're all written by somebody, but this is what this is what somebody has written for this. A woman discover, discovers a newly resurrected, partially formed body of of her brother-in-law. She starts killing him, killing for him to revitalize his body so he can escape the demonic beings that are pursuing him after he escaped their sadistic underworld. I mean, that's a bit wordy. But 
hashtag true. But hashtag true. I don't know what I'd even put as like the the sub the sub. What my synopsis would be if I wrote a synopsis for this film. Some dumb motherfucker opened a box. Geezers from hell ripped him apart. That, no, that's too wordy. You're giving away the whole plot. Birdie was shagging on the side, killed dudes to get his skin back. It's a bit too wordy and gives away too much plot, though. I mean, so did that one. Not massively. So, I'm going to start with you, as always. I mean, I know you weren't fussed on last week's movie, The T-Rex Assist. Yeah. Um, so, how, like, talk about, let's talk about this movie. Like, yes. You are aware of who the man, the big man Pinhead is, aren't you? I am indeed. So when I was a kid, my mum had a box set of... So we're talking, this is in like the early 2000s, late 90s. So I think the first three Pinhead movies, potentially the first four Hellraiser films, on DVD, on video actually, not DVD, in our cupboard. And on the side of the box it had Pinhead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So you could see him, and then on the front it had the lament configuration. So I was aware of Pinhead from a really young age, because my my mum, and she'll say it quite regularly whenever you bring it up, loves Hellraiser. Pinhead is one of her all-time favourite movie villains. Um, So I was aware of Pinhead from like a really young age. I'd never seen any of them, but I was aware of it purely because of my mum. So I was kind of looking forward to seeing this, just because I was like, oh, this is something I can talk to my mum about. <laughs> And she'll actually give a shit what I'm saying. So I'm just going, oh, for fuck's sake, Lee. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, I was, I was, um, I was reasonably excited to watch Hellraiser. And this is the third time Clive Barker's come up on the podcast. It is. We've covered a lot of Clive Barker. Yeah, I think we've covered at this point more Clive Barker than Wes Craven and John Carpenter combined. Mhm. That seems fair. Yeah. But what did you think of it? So, <clears throat> what did I think about it? Yeah, let's just just get let's get so, into the meat and the bones. Of it's it. one of those films that I was kind of expecting quite a lot from because so my for anyone who doesn't know my mum and most of my friends I don't even think know this about my mum. My mum likes really gory horror. Her favourite horror films, along with this, are Saw, Hostel. Mm-hmm. She likes her gore for some ungodly reason. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of going into it expecting it to be like really, really, really violent. And it's not. It's quite a slow-paced film. Yeah, I think this is the misconception. I think it's like, in the, in a weird way, it's kind of like The Exorcist in that in that sort of sense. It's like a lot of exposition punctuated by moments of like violence but all of all of the exposition in this movie leads towards the final piece like all of the exposition you get in this film is on purpose Mm -hmm. which i tend to find with clive barker in general all of his films all of the exposition you get leads to a purpose it's not just mindless exposition for the sake of it Mm, you say that. I mean, Nightbreed's got a lot of fucking useless. Yeah, but Nightbreed, Nightbreed's one of those films. That I, like when we watched it, it feels like there's massive chunks of it missing, mm-hmm. which we discussed when we covered it. Yeah. So it's not that there's exposition that makes no sense. It's that it makes sense, but you're like, well, where's the rest of it? This is obviously for a purpose. Where the fuck is the rest of this piece? Yeah. I like Candyman's a very linear film. Like yeah. every scene in Candyman services the story in some way. And I feel like with this, I mean, this does as well. This is like, I think this one was the first adaptation of his work, which is why he did it. And I feel like it very, it's a very, it's a very lean film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like an hour and 30 minutes. It's a very like straight to the point, like 
this movie does not fuck about. There are no real wasted scenes in this movie, which no. I find really. But good. I think the only scene that like I was like it doesn't really matter too much whether that was here or not is the dinner party scene. Yeah, that's the only scene that was basically just added in for a bit of like this is what they're like as people. Yeah, to kind of show the growing tension between Larry and Julia, and yeah. to have that fucking geezer flirting with Kirsty. Yeah, who. Is kind of in a couple of scenes. He's a bit of a superfluous character, but he's just like he's Kirsty's boyfriend, dude that she's maybe having sex with. We don't really know. We don't really know. He it's implied that they're living together, though. I think at one point, mm. but it's never really addressed. And maybe that's why he's at the dinner party. Well, no, because I don't think her parent, I don't think her dad knows that that's who she's with. Because she always just refers to it as she's got a room. Whenever she talks about where she's living. Yeah, what I mean is, I'm assuming he's at the dinner party because she invited him as, like, one of her friends. Maybe. Like, because he's not related to any of the other people. I don't know. I have no idea who the fuck he is. His name's Steve. Well. Good guy, Steve. He's he's not my favourite character called Steve. That's all I can say about him. He's also, like, a bit of a non-entity in this movie. Yeah. Um, He doesn't really do a lot. No. Um, But then, to be fair, like, he doesn't really need to. I think he just needs to be there to kind of ground Kirsty's character. Yeah. But yeah, I think much the same as you. Like, my initial thoughts on this were, I was aware of Pinhead growing up way, like, from a really young age, way more than I was, like, Michael Myers or a lot of, like, horror icons. I always thought he was way bigger than he was. Like, I always thought he was way, way more popular mm. just because he was talked about a lot more in my house and I saw, like, more things with him on. Um, so when I first saw this movie, I was expecting it to be like horrific as well. And I saw this movie when I was quite young and I was fully... I think that's a a story for everything you've ever watched. Like I saw it really young. But like I expected it to be way more horrific. Yeah. Um, And I've not seen it in a while. Like it's been a a while since I've seen it. And I was like, yeah, because I'd said to you, didn't I, before we watched this, I was like, yeah, don't get your hopes up. I was like... The Cenobites don't really turn up until the last sort of 20 minutes. Yeah. Um, And then all hell breaks loose. Um, Quite literally. But yeah, it's one of those interesting movies. Now, I'm going to say something which I don't necessarily think a lot of people will agree with me with. But I do think that Pinhead as a character is one of the very few horror icons that actually benefited from having sequels. Because if this was a standalone movie, I don't think he would have reached the icon status that he has. And I think this movie kind of does the characters a bit of a disservice. Well, the thing is, is so everything you read or not about it, is Pinhead, or lead Cenobite, as he's actually called in this, was never supposed to be, like, the main character. He was supposed to be just, like, part of a group of villains. Mm. And he became super popular and became the face of the franchise. And you know why? Because of all the fucking goths and the BDSM fans. Because he's Leather Daddy. Yeah. Ofs. Everyone's just like, look, man, I want to fuck Pinhead while listening to Sisters of Mercy. Do you know what, though? It's so, in my head, I have an image of what Pinhead looks like. The, the the face of Pinhead. And then in my head, for some reason, he wears an all-black, like, leather dress. And he doesn't. There's, like, nipple cuts out that have got, like, red bands. Yeah, so Is his... that only in this film? Yeah, his outfit does change. In the second and third one, he's got more of, like, the leather bodice. Yeah, it's like so, a leather corset at top yeah. with like a long and then dress. It's like, yeah. Right, okay. Because like, that's how I pitched it in my head. And I was looking at this and I was like, it doesn't look how I remember him looking like in my brain. Yeah, his outfit looks slightly more priest-like. It's more like a leather... Ca- is it a cassock, the word I'm looking for? Yeah, a cassock. Yeah. I think it's a cassock. Because he is technically a hell priest. 
So he wears like his outfit is kind of like a bondage type priest outfit. Yeah. So he is... looks slightly different. I didn't I don't know. I was not a fan of the red in his outfit, I'm not gonna lie. Didn't need the nipple cut outs with the red <laughs> leather straps in all honest. I was like looking at him and I was like, that is not my leather daddy. <laughs> I was like, just a note, because he'll get referred to it as a lot. I know you've referred to him quite a few times before this. Leather Daddy is the nickname in this house for Pinhead. And I don't know where it came from, but it happened and now it's like permanent. Yeah, because if you look, I will show you because I can grab it from the shelf. Yeah, if you look here, the uh, the one from Hellraiser 3, because I've got the little Funko Pop from Hellraiser yeah, he's still 3. Got the He's got the little red bits, but he's got some, like, weapons hanging from it as well. He's got, like, his little red nail varnish on. And he's got, like, what looks to be, like, butcher's weaponry. Yeah. So it's kind of like a priest outfit meets a butcher's apron, kind of, is what he wears. But he still has the red bits. For some reason, in my head, his outfit was all black. And it was, like, a corset top dress. Yeah. I think it does change from movie to movie. I don't know why, but that's what it was in my head. There was no, there was no other colour in it. It was just all black. Also, that Funko Pop is adorable as fuck. He is cute AF. I'm not gonna lie. But yeah, so basically, I'd got we'd I'd gone into this with the full exception of like I I already love Pinhead. Yeah. And he's not as villainous as I was kind of expecting him to be. I think it's because whenever I think of 80s horror movies, I think of like them hunting people down and mm. like slow walks, sitting up when you think they're dead. And he's like, he's not really villainous. So I think we've come to realise this with Clive Barker's work. Clive Barker makes beautiful monsters. Mm. So his monsters are always really eloquent, really well-spoken, really... Like, creatures that you could almost fall in love with. Mm. And the humans are always the real enemy. Yeah. Because if you look at... Can like, Candyman and Pinhead are very similar characters. Something very bad happened to them in their former lives as humans. Yeah. Which caused them to become these, like, entities that can be summoned when people are in times of, like, great suffering or whatever. And they need something... Yeah. ...to be summoned. But they're always, like, really well-spoken, really, like you know, kind of almost tragic, poetic figures. And I feel like Pinhead, even though he's like, I'm going to tear your soul apart. So, you know, you know that there are women there that are like, yeah, daddy, tear that ass up. Because that's what Clive Barker says on that scariest horror yeah, moment. Yeah, he's, he's, like, like, he he's like, he gets letters <laughs> from women wanting to bear Pinhead's children. Yeah. See, the thing is, is because I know in is it the third movie, we get the backstory of who... Yeah, Pinhead actually is movie, so Elliot Spencer. Elliot Spencer, Spencer, yeah. Elliot, Elliot, Elliot Spencer. Spencer. Which I knew about this long before I started watching Pinhead because Tumblr is obsessed with him, and he shares the name of the character from Leverage. Leverage. He's my, 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 one of my favorite. I say one of my favorite characters in Leverage. It alters very regularly between three different characters. Um, so I'd seen online, like online, of people like, basically just thirsting. <laughs> over Pinhead because apparently a lot of people would quite like to fuck yeah. him and he has quite a sexy voice like Doug Bradley's voice he is does sexy. have a very sexy same voice same as Tony Todd Tony same Todd has as a very Tony sexy, Todd, sexy yeah. voice I get very excited whenever Tony Todd appears on anything I'm like oh my god look at Candyman yeah and like the thing I think the thing with this is like especially with the Cenobites like the Cenobites are very 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 fucking cool to look at 
Um, obviously, like they don't, the rest of them don't do a, a, a great amount. I mean, yeah, Chatterer's like, do you know he like? Do you, do, you, do you not think it's weird? The first thing that he does when he turns up is he fingers Kirsty's mouth. He puts a fucking mandible claw on her. Like when he comes out, when she's in the hospital, he comes out and he, he gets his two, he gets his two fingers like this. Oh, he just jams them in her mouth, and I'm like, "What is what is it with everybody sucking fingers at this movie?" I don't know. We it's might a, have to ask Clive Barker about if it, if it's a Quentin Tarantino situation. Yeah, like he just like man loves fingers, <laughs> loves fingers, it's, or he's got an oral fixation, maybe. I mean, I'm just saying, there's a lot of exposed mouths in this film as well. And also, what I do love is so the two of the Cenobites, um, Butterball and Chatter, don't talk. Specifically, because they couldn't talk Cause of through their, their prosthetics, because yeah. they had lines originally, had to cut the lines and give them to female and uh, pinhead. It makes me super sad that as I've got older, I start to look a lot more like the butterball one. <laughs> no, you don't, baby. I do. No, you don't. Well, when I shave my head and put sunglasses on, that's who I'm going. That's who I'm going as Halloween this year. Fair enough. <laughs> he just looks like a melted pile of ice cream in a leather bodice. It's fucking hilarious. He does. Um, so let's talk about the actual. Like, we'll get back to the Cenobites. We'll t- but let's talk about the plot of this movie. Like, did did you enjoy the plot of this movie? Did you think the the actual movie, like the way it drove to the conclusion, was interesting, or were you not invested in the human characters as much as the Cenobites? So I feel like it could have been two separate films. Yeah. Because I'm not gonna lie, if you're gonna sit and watch Hellraiser, you're watching Hellraiser because you want to see the Cenobites. Yeah. And they're not in it a lot. I think in total you get about half an hour of Cenobites against an hour, an hour and a half of film. And the rest of it is all human characters. Yeah. Well, and Frank, but he's weird flesh monster. Um, and that in itself, the weird flesh monster murdering to bring someone back from the dead could have been its own film. And then Hellraiser could have been a separate movie just about the Cenobites. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed both plots. I just didn't really appreciate the plots together. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I mean, I do get that. It is a bit of a disjointed movie. Yeah. Um, and I feel like the the story being called The Hellbound Heart, like, he did take a little bit of, like, the Edgar Allan Poe... Uh, what's the fucking story? That I'm Telltale Heart. Telltale Heart thing to to life and took it to heart a little bit with the Julia subplot. I am intrigued to what would have happened if Julia had become the main villain because the second movie, Hellbound, like opens the world up so much more. Mm. Like you see Hell, you see this big like creature. Julia's back, but she's like in Frank form, so she's like she's the skinless one in this one, um, and like Kirsty's in it a lot more. And um, I know Clive Barker wanted to make her the primary villain going forward. And then obviously everybody was like, no, you give us the sexy leather man or we riot. So obviously fucking Pinhead became the G. But I don't really know how much mileage they... I I think they could have made the second one and then tied tied it off. I don't think there would have been any more movies past that point, though. Yeah. Um, Because there's only so much mileage you can get out of her as a character. Don't get me wrong. Claire Higgins is given full, like... Black Widow, 
Joan Cusack in Adam's Family Values vibes in this movie. Um, she has never seen the film. Has she not? No. So apparently at the premiere, she lasted 10 minutes before she left because she couldn't stomach it. Oh, shit. She's never actually seen the whole movie. Which is interesting. Not Joan Cusack, obviously. I mean... (laughs) Claire... Higgins. Higgins. But the thing is, I imagine that's kind of one of those things, isn't it? Like, a film is very different when you're making it to when you actually see it, like, finished. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you know what? Actually, one thing I do appreciate with Clive Barker that he does in this movie, and he does it very well, is the scenes with Frank. So when she's bringing the suitors home and she's murdering them, he does a lot of cutaways. So I think, again, this is another reason why people... And much like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, your brain is kind of tricked into thinking this movie's gorier than it is. Yeah. Because obviously you see her hit them with the hammer Mm. and then you see Frank come and get the bodies, but then she closes the door or the camera is on her reaction while Frank does what he needs to do with the bodies. And then you see the bodies afterwards and you see him like slowly coming back to life. And I think all of it together, your brain kind of goes, oh. Fills like, in the blanks. Yeah, yeah, like she's murdering these dudes and Frank's consuming them. But you don't ever see any of that, which I genuinely really appreciate because I think it adds a little bit more to the horror of like hearing people screaming or like. Do- it's very, it's not very often you'll hear me talk about that because I do like to see people be murdered on screen. Like that's part of the reason why I watch horror movies. But I do think Clive Barker here chose a very interesting route to kind of frame his murder scenes mm-hmm. i thought it was very interesting how he he did it i don't know how you felt about it um <laughs> I, part of me understands the reasoning behind it mostly of probably budget yeah and also rating yeah um so they can't really show too much graphic because a you have to have a budget to pull it off which i don't think this movie had a massive budget no. And then B, you then have to get it through the, whatever the American film board is MPAA. called. MPAA. The MPAA, thank you. I think also, that's part of the reason why the Cenobites probably aren't in this movie as much, is because I think this movie got its budget cut while he was making it. Mm-hmm. Poor old big man Clive, he's like, I'm just going to make movies, and everyone's like, we're just going to cut your budget in half. And I think that's why he had to focus on the more human aspects of the movie, and that's why the movie, if you notice, takes place in like three locations. Yeah. Um, but I will say... He spent the money where he needed to. The Frank puppet, when Frank comes back from the dead for the first time, and you see him reassembling himself, is fucking... Yeah, but it's fucking rad, though, dude. Like, it's awesome the way the practical effects look. Did you not think the practical effects were cool? No, they were very cool, but it was just disgusting. I like like the different layers of Frank as he's, like, coming back to life with, like, the bones and then the skin... And then the muscles. And he always looks kind of slimy, which yeah. I love. He's always got like muscle stuff hanging off of him or blood dripping off of him. And I think he looks really cool when he's like reassembling himself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that was where the budget went. Yeah. On 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 Frank. On Frank. Yeah. Which is fair. Um and like the makeup as well, because the makeup effects in this movie on the Cenobites is amazing. Also, uh, Doug Bradley has a um, makeup effects credit in these films because oh, nice. he he learned how to do his own parts of his own makeup, so he could help the makeup team put on the pinhead stuff. And he has a credit. I don't know if it's in this film, but I know across the series he has a credit as a special effects artist. Also, I'm pretty sure he wears lifts. 
Because Doug Bradley is quite a short guy in real life. Probably. He's wearing big boots And on. Pinhead's quite statuesque. Or they shoot him to look statuesque. Yeah. They just... They use the Hobbit technology. They the use the, the Hobbit... They, they use the Hobbit technology, but in reverse. Yeah. Specifically so they make him Pinhead. look big and make every... It's like for, all forced perspective. All forced he, perspective. He's in the foreground on an apple box and everybody else is turned about two feet away from him. Yeah. Yeah. But he... Um, so, like, the other performances in this movie, I think Claire Higgins is fucking great in this movie. I think every scene that she's in as Julia, and especially as she becomes more villainous, I think she really holds the movie together. Yeah. I think her, she's, her journey is really interesting. Yeah. Kind of seeing her in this loveless marriage um, and then kind of, like, being almost like a slave to this man that she has, like, this torrid affair with who kind of, like... I I don't want to say like because I don't want to I don't want to offend anybody by using the wrong terminology because I don't think it is a sub and a dom relationship no. but it's very on the line of there's a lot of power play between the two of them and it's also mildly abusive or well, I say mildly it's quite an abusive relationship yeah when you look at his treatment of her yeah um, although to be fair in the terms of it being a dom and sub sub relationship it's not and if it was it'd be a very unhealthy one. But it would be healthier than Fifty Shades of Grey, so... Yeah. The reason why Take I... Take that what you will. The reason why I kind of mention that is because he he's all about the pleasure and the pain and, like, the, the things in life. And, like, obviously he convinced... Like, I think more than anything, he's actually just gaslighting the shit out of her. He's like, I need you to help me come back from hell and, like, you're just going to do it. She's like, yeah. Cause... Oh, yeah. He's he's a gaslighting fuck. Definitely. Like, I want that. I want that dick again. Which I I think this is why the title um, "Women Will Do Anything for a Good Fuck" is my favourite title for this movie because yeah, she obviously enjoys having sex with him over her husband. And I love how like the more people she murders, her hair becomes bigger because it's full of secrets, and her outfits become more and more iconic. Yeah, like she starts dressing more like a businesswoman slash like newly like newly minted widow. She's got big fucking sunglasses on massive earrings and she just looks like really fucking cool all the time um larry is awful larry is like the worst part of this movie oh he's just such a wet blanket he's such a simp and he just doesn't do anything and like i think secretly he knows that his wife's like not loyal to him because there's that bit where the two builders turn up and that or the two moving guys and they're like staring at him and he's like, oh, I'll get it then. Like when they're talking about the beers, he's like, I'll get them then, shall I? And he's just looking at her and he's looking at them and he's like, I don't know if he's just jealous because people are looking at his wife or if he knows that secretly like his wife's sleeping with other people on the side and he just doesn't want to admit it to himself. Um, but I he, mean, a bit of both probably. Yeah, his character like doesn't do anything in this movie and no. like he doesn't even really service the plot. Like... Other than the fact that it's his brother who, it's I think it's like his brother and his childhood home that they move into, yeah. or a house that they shared at one point, uh, and that's kind of what kicks it all off. And the fact that she had the affair with him, but other than that, there's absolutely like no need for Larry to be in this movie because he's fucking rubbish. However, on the flip side, Kirsty is fucking awesome. Yeah. Like, she's one of the most underrated and underappreciated final girls in the history of horror. She's fucking independent. She's strong. She's badass. She's, like, intelligent. She's smart, yeah. Yeah. She, like, 
is capable. She's not like fannying around like a lot of them do. Like, oh no, I'm in danger. She's like, no, she's doing shit. She's yeah. like proactive and she's out there like doing stuff. And is the is this the bit towards the end when she's hiding from Larry Frank? Yeah, and. <clears throat> She manages to keep herself quiet because you know full well if there was any other final girl they'd have screamed either at the thing calling flying out of the closet or the dead body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She keeps her fucking mouth shut like a G. Mm-hmm. And then she basically gets caught by him because she does something dumb, which every final girl at some point has to do something dumb. And she lures him into the room that she knows the Cenobites are in so that they can capture him. Yeah. And she makes that awesome deal with the Cenobites because she tells, she tells uh, Pinhead... That Frank is still alive and that she'll she'll lead them to to him if they let her go. I mean, it doesn't work out so well for her because they renege on their deal. But yeah, they tried to stab her in the back. Yeah. Um, I mean, which you kind of would expect. Oh, a hundred percent. But she's a great final girl. She's in the second one, and she comes back later in the franchise in one of the later movies as well and reprises the role. But yeah, I think when people talk about Final Girls, everybody's all like, Laurie Strode this, Nancy Thompson that, Sydney Prescott over here. Kirsty Cotton doesn't get mentioned enough. No. And in the comic books, she actually takes over from Pinhead. She actually trades places with him and she becomes the Hell Priestess and he gets returned to Elliot Spencer form. Oh, really? And she lives in Hell as the Hell Priestess. Which is fucking dope. So yeah, she don't like. I I think it is weird because I think out of all of the films we've watched thus far with a final girl, she may in fact be my favourite final girl. Yeah, man, she's awesome that we've had. Because she is, she she does smart shit. She ain't fucking around. And I mean, as much as I know you love Sydney because she loves Scream, she makes some dumb choices in that film, Mm -hmm. like so fucking dumb. And like I was watching this, there was no point where I was like, oh, what the fuck are you doing? Why are you doing that, Kirsty? Honestly, I was like, yes, Kirsty, Yes. I mean, she does open the box at one point, which is a bit of a silly mistake. But then what it leads to is actually like genius. Yeah, but also, to be fair, you've got a random box. You're going to be intrigued as to what the fuck is in it, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Never give anyone a box. Oh, you like, oh, you've seen this now. And if someone handed me a box, I'd be like, I'm going to open it. <laughs> because that's what you do. You open boxes. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> because no, everyone learned from Pandora. It's exactly what you do. We don't care what the outcome is. We need to know what's inside it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think she's great, and I think Ashley Lawrence's performance is really good at this. We watched it. Do we? Do you remember that episode of Creep Show we watched very fairly recently, where she was like the therapist, mm-hmm. um, and she has like the little lemon configuration coasters on her desk, which I thought was a cute little nod to. Um, to her being in this movie. But yeah, I, I genuinely think that she's one of the best final girls of all time. And yeah. I think she's just, as you say, she just does. And like, the thing is like, she never, it's weird because like, it's, it's a weird thing to say, but she never feels like she's intimidated by the Cenobites. I mean, once Chatterer lets her go, like pulls his fingers out of her gob, like she never <coughs> backs down. Like she says, she to him, puts her big girl pants on. Yeah, she says, she says, "Oi, pinface, this is what's going to happen, and take it or leave it." And he's like, 
All right, fair She enough. got up that morning and she put her big girl pants on. She chose violence. She chose violence. <laughs> She's like, <laughs> he's like, he's like, all right, fair enough. But if you, if you fuck me over, I'm going to tear your soul apart. She is, she is the epitome of, uh, she is beauty, she is grace. She will punch you in the face, isn't she? Yeah, she's fucking great. Because I full blown, that girl would punch him in the face. If she didn't, didn't know it would hurt her hand, she would full blown punch him yeah. in the face. But no, she's great in this movie. And like, it's just that scene at the end when they tear Frank apart and she's watching it happen and she's more horrified by what's happening to him than the creatures that are coming after her. Yeah. And I just I just love her. I just think she's great. And I'd forgotten how good she was <laughs> in this movie. Um, so I'm a little bit intrigued to the relationship between Kirsty and Frank because obviously I know he's her uncle. Oh, God. But yeah. there are a few quite uncomfortable scenes. Yeah. Because he refers to himself as daddy in regards to her quite a few times. And it all just seems a little bit creepy sit on money uncle. Yeah, especially as we know that that's what he says to Julia. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think the worst instance of it is when he has finally come back in his final form. And he's his Larry. And he's got her dad's face on and he says it. And I'm like, that genuinely made my skin crawl. I yeah. Like, it's like very... it's, I don't think it's implied that anything did happen, but it is kind of implied that he he would if he felt he could get away with it. Yeah, because as we learn, like, Frank is a fucking cunt in this movie. Oh, he's an absolute twat. Um, and he keeps photos of all of the women he slept with as well. Mm. In, like, a creepy little box with them all in questionable positions. Yeah, he's a he's a bad man. He is a bad man. But yeah, the scenes with him and Kirsty are like really uncomfortable. Yeah. Um yeah, not not pleasant stuff. Not pleasant at all. Not pleasant stuff at all. Um but I do like that they kind of nod to it and they imply that there's maybe potentially that something has happened there without outright stating it or making it or like showing any flashbacks. Yeah. yeah. Which I appreciate is it's never out white stated because it makes it slightly worse in some ways, but also easier to sit through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the thing is, I don't know, like, because when we meet him, he's in some like undetermined Asian country and he's drinking absinthe with some Asian man who he buys the box off of. With I think he's just referred to as the merchant. But the thing is, you don't know how long he's been away for. So you don't know, like, when the last time he saw her was. Yeah. So you don't know if, like, he was being that way with her when she was a child or a teenager. Because she's meant to be, like, I think early 20s in this movie. I believe so. Like, 21, 22. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, like, the implication of how long he's been away for versus, like, what he says is kind of like yeah it's very uncomfortable um and clive barker does that every now and then he puts things in his like writing that are there to kind of make your skin crawl a little bit yeah um but like i'll ask you i'll ask you what do you think of the idea of like the cenobite and the hell region and like what they represent like the pleasure and pain, like the I line mean... that he says when it's like angels to some, demons to others. Because obviously they're designed to work masochistically. 
So you'll either get pleasure out of the torture or you'll be like pained for eternity. Like, what do you think of that whole idea of like the pleasure and pain, like torture, like factor in this movie? It's very, it's very downplayed, but obviously it's a big part of the movie and the franchise in general. I think the problem, like, so with this film, we don't actually learn that much about the Cenobites at all. We don't even learn that they're a member of the Order of the Gash. No, we don't. We look. Le- we learn so little about them as characters. Like, we know they're from hell. We know they're called Cenobites. And that they have something to do with, like, S&M mm-hmm. situations. That's about it. Which is why I said this would have made more sense as two films, two separate films. Because I would have, I'm would, i far more interested in everything to do with the Cenobites than I am in any anything that goes on with the human characters in yeah. this film. Like, oh, you were having an affair and he's now a creepy corpsey thing and you can bring him back if you kill people, yay for you, I don't... He looks like a walking... Why don't you murder your husband, first of all? Because apparently you hate his guts, so that would make sense. (laughs) Frank looks like a walking, talking cannibal corpse album cover. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's a really weird thing. So it's supposed to be, I'm assuming, like a torture thing in hell. But people like Frank, they get pleasure from pain because he says like they, they took me further than I'd ever been before um like they showed me true pleasure and true pain or something along those lines so it doesn't make sense the torture because there are people who do you know they, they, they quite like a bit of pain with their mm-hmm. sexy times very very fine line between pleasure and pain yes so yeah it's a weird it's a weird one I don't really know because I'm like you're just kinky sadomasochist creatures what's your point in hell what do you do in hell guys what is your job i want to see i want to see like i'd be far more invested in seeing the pinhead's red room than fucking mr gray's (laughs) yeah mr gray's like i have such sites to such sites to show you and pinhead's like bitch please bitch please i would like a crossover with uh, Mr. Grey and Pinhead. Nice. Just to see Grey cry and all honesty. Because <laughs> he'd be like, oh no. Oh no. But it's a really interesting concept. Like, it, it, I think because we don't learn a lot about them, like, I don't really have much thoughts on like their place in hell. Because I'm like, I don't really know what they do. They just really like S&M. Like, I'd love to know... And what... leather. <clears throat> like, I, like, I'd like to know what they do when people haven't opened the box. Like, what their nine to five occupation is. Because, yeah. like, they only spring into action when somebody opens the box. So, like, are they dormant? Are they sleeping? Are they hitting up golf clubs? Are they, like, hanging out, like, listening to fucking Sisters of Mercy and smoking crack when people, were, like, aren't around? I don't know. Like, I'd love to know, like... Like a day off. Yeah. What Pinhead does on his day off. Yeah. Does he, does he, has he got admin work to do? Has he got taxes? Has he got, is he cleaning the, like, torture cubes down? Like, what is he doing? Because, like, you see those, like fucking pillars don't you they don't look like they've been cleaned though yeah they've all got like fucking skulls and guts and shit nailed to them yeah i don't think they clean them because it's torture it's not supposed to actually be fun times it's supposed to be torture those outfits where do they get them dry cleaned i don't think i think they hand wash i think they're hand washers do you know what i think happens is on their days off they they make more outfits yeah. Like, I, but, but not the female Cenobite. I feel like the fe- female Cenobite's like, I ain't doing shit. Well, so you think like, like Pinhead, Chatterer, Butterballer just sat down at some sewing machines making like, yeah. new outfits. And she's there cracking the whip. 
I mean, quite literally as well. I mean, I yeah. Alec, do you reckon? Do you reckon he takes his pins out and like cleans his pins so they don't get rusty? Maybe. Like, how does he shower? Does he have to put like a a little bag over? Yeah, <laughs> you know, like when you dye your hair, you get those little plastic bags that you keep. That you've got to like put. Like... What does he need to breathe? Because like, you just put an entire plastic bag over his. Nah, head. man, he looks like a guy with an asphyxiation fetish. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> he's hanging out. With, that's what he's doing on his day off. He's hanging out with Michael Hutchins, giving him advice on how not to kill himself when he's hanging himself with a belt. Wow, <laughs> that got dark. I mean, I'm just saying. That got dark. It's like Russell Brand says, if you see the light, if you see the light of Christ while masturbating, do not go into the light. <laughs> Fuck's sake. Jesus. Um, but yeah. I, but yeah I, do you know what? I'd be, I'd, I would be invested. If Clive Barker had written a story of like Pinhead's day off, I would have I would have read it ten out of ten. We I should go on Tumblr and see if like we should suggest it. You know the guy that, the girl that does the Jason comics. Oh my god! We should suggest yes. that as like a a comic for her to do. Pinhead's day off. Yeah. Speaking of the Michael Myers comic, no, 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 Jason, Jason for his comic book girl, who we suggested, who we spoke about previously. She did one a crossover with Mike Myers. Nice. She's done one with Carrie and she's done one with Mike Myers now. Groovy baby. Now. Groovy, baby. Well, it's funny, actually, you bring up Michael Myers because we can talk about the Hellraiser franchise a little bit because after... So the, there's ten Hellraiser movies. Oh, let me turn. Hang on. I've got to do this. So, oh, four, of, four of which went theatrically. So you've got Hellraiser, Hellraiser 2, Hellbound, Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth, which is my personal favourite, mm-hmm. Hellraiser 4, Bloodline. Which one's the one that in the nightclub? It's got like Jared, Jared Palalecki or Jensen Eccles or somebody in it. Neither of none of them are in this one. None of them are in. Who's in the the club one? Henry Cavill. Yeah, Henry Cavill's in uh, Deader or Hell World or Hellseeker. One of those ones. Man gets a blowjob and then he gets fucking killed. It's the first movie he was ever in. I don't know why I thought it was. I think it's because it's the kind of film, fucking, especially Jared Padalecki yeah. would have been in. Because they went, so after the first four theatrical, they went to straight to video. There's six straight to video sequels. Doug Bradley's in most of them, I think, except for the last one. But at some point, it was pitched for a. Doug Bradley said in an interview that he released, he received two scripts for a Pinhead versus Michael Myers crossover movie, so Halloween and Hellraiser. And, um,. Apparently, John Carpenter was pitched to direct and Clive Barker to write. And I was like, I don't really understand how that would have worked. Um, Purely because Michael Myers, much like Jason, doesn't talk. Mm. So much like Freddy versus Jason, you would have had to have had all of the exposition come from... Pinhead. And Pinhead doesn't talk that much. He has he's a man of few words and He gets stature. way more chatty in the sequels. Oh, does he? Yeah. Um, like fun chatty or like intimidating chatty? A little of both. Yeah. Um, just so, imagine Pinhead sat there punning away. And I don't... But the thing is, I don't really... Like, nobody... like the, This is the kind of the problem with Hollywood. Everybody wanted Freddy vs. Jason because they were the two, and to this day, I would argue, still the two most popular slasher icons of all time. Yeah. So everybody wanted that because they were the big dogs at the time. Nobody wants... Like, I've heard pitches of Candyman versus Leprechaun. Tony Todd was like, I ain't doing that cracker-ass bullshit. And I was like, I don't fucking blame you, mate. Like, and then I've heard, like, 
Chucky versus Pinhead, Leatherface versus like all of these fucking movies. The thing is, what I don't understand is obviously like Michael Myers and Pinhead. What reason do they have for going up against each other? Well, the reason. So in some of the later um, Halloween sequels, Michael Myers is controlled by a cult. He is like the essence of evil who mm, is actually... Yeah, no, I know that. So like they were saying that he found the puzzle box when he was a child and then like he solved the puzzle box when he was a kid, but he was able to escape hell as a child and that's why Pinhead comes after him. And I was like, that's such a flimsy... But they're both working for hell at this point. So yeah. why would they go up against each other? They're more likely to team up and fuck people up. So that always seemed like a pointless crossover. I don't want to team up of the two of them. But the thing that does make me laugh is he was originally pitched to be in one of the alternate endings of Freddy vs. Jason. So there was, a, there was a scene that was written, and in the Camp Crystal Lake book that I've got, I'll show you after this, there's actually a drawing of it. Uh, concept art of Freddy and Jason both being pulled down to hell by chains and they're fighting in a pit in hell with all of like hell's demons around them and then Pinhead steps out and says what seems to be the problem gentlemen but they said that they thought Pinhead was too much of a low rent character to be like in the Freddy and fucking coming for my leather daddy in this yeah so he was cut out of that but there have been some like interesting um like Hellraiser things outside of the movies. Um, there's obviously the the Scarlet Gospels book, which was the last book that um, Clive Barker wrote, which has Harry Damar or Damor, which is one of his other characters on the hunt for Pinhead. Um, because uh, Sherlock Holmes is public domain, somebody wrote a Sherlock Holmes book called Sherlock Holmes and the Cenobites of Hell, where he fucking te- he like tries to take down Pinhead, amazing. which is amazing. Then there's a night they did a Nightbreed crossover in the comics. They did a whole bunch of comic series. They did the comic series with a woman. They've done the comic series where Kirsty becomes the Hell Priestess. There was like book tie-ins for like the films. They tried to make a video game at one point. Like Pinhead is now in Dead by Daylight because I showed that trailer the other day of him being in Dead by Daylight. And it's kind of interesting to see, like, what mediums the character does and doesn't work in. Like, in films, obviously, he works very well. In the comics, it depends on who's writing the comics as to whether they can get his voice right. Mm. Um, and I mean that in the sense of, like, writing the, the dialogue for him and yeah, things like that. The way he would speak. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I find it fascinating, like, for somebody that's considered, like, a B-tier <sighs> character by a large portion of the horror community just how popular he actually is in the same sense that Candyman is very popular. And while I feel like he, the character of the Cenobites and Pinhead respectively benefited from having a couple of sequels, I don't, I think much like a lot of horror characters that it became diluted as it went along. Um, But I'm going to ask your opinion on this now because they're making a Hellraiser TV series Mm -hmm. for HBO Max, which David Gordon Green, who's just relaunched, the um, Halloween franchise is involved mm-hmm. in, and they're currently filming a Hellraiser movie um, that David Bruckner, who is the guy who made The Night House, is directing. Um, and it's very... They've not confirmed who is playing Pinhead yet, but it's heavily rumoured that Elizabeth Debicki, who played the gold woman Aisha in Guardians of the Galaxy mm-hmm. 2, and is Kenneth Branagh's wife from Tenet, is playing Pinhead. 
And I'd be very interested to kind of get your thoughts on how you feel about that. Because in the original novel, um, Pinhead is actually genderless and is written as an effeminate looking character. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of interested to see how you feel about that. So, uh, A, the TV show, I'm vaguely interested because I I do like the Cenobites. I mean, it depends on how much they're basing it off of like human stories against the actual Cenobites. Mm -hmm. Because I couldn't give a fuck about humans, but if you want to tell me about demon S and M monsters, up for it. <laughs> and also, it's HBO, so it's going to depend on how gory it is. Because HBO are known for not really giving a fuck, giving a fuck about how gory their shows are. Game of Thrones is a great example. Sopranos. Of Sopranos. Um, so I'll, like, I'll probably give it a watch. Whether I'll manage to actually watch it or not is a different story. But I'd probably give it a watch because fucking yes. Leather Daddy. Uh, movie, I haven't seen Nighthouse yet, so I don't know how I feel about him as a director. I think we're going to probably get to watch it next week. Fingers yeah. crossed. Um, but I like, like the idea, like, obviously in my head, when I picture Pinhead, I picture Pinhead we all know and love. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't think I'd give a fuck if it was a woman, to be honest. Because you know Gottmik auditioned to be in the film. From Drag Race. Yes, I did actually, because I'm pretty sure Gottmik auditioned to be Pinhead. Yeah, the producers, after he did the... He, she, sorry? He. Well, depends. He, out of drag, she, in drag, okay. I think are her preferences, but I'm not sure. I'll just say they. Yeah. Um, so they did the Pinhead look on the runway in, in the did. season of Drag Race that they were in. And um, the producers brought them in for that very reason. But then when they did the audition, uh, the producers didn't think that they were menacing enough. Yeah. Um, which I can kind of understand. Um, I love Gottmik, but they are, they are quite delicate, I mm-hmm. think would be the best way to word it. Is that she, he is quite a small, Person. skinny, um, life, I think is probably yeah. the best word for it. So I could see why maybe not intimidating enough. And also, I don't think he's very tall either yeah whereas elizabeth debicki is like six foot yeah she has that voice yeah and that's the other thing as well gomic does not have the voice mm-hmm. but i think elizabeth debicki if you're gonna cast female is a fucking amazing choice yeah she's statuesque she's got that really calm voice but it always sounds like there's something under the surface like a like a bubbling sort of seething There's rage. There's a few female actors who I could see playing a character like Pinhead. Jessica Chastain. Was Je- yeah, one. I was going to say, <laughs> Jessica Chastain is up there on the list. Gwendolyn Christie. Oh, fuck yeah. Gwendolyn Christie as Pinhead. I would throw my money at that movie in a heartbeat. And who's who's the other one Christie. that's kind of similar to Gwendolyn Christie who I'm trying to think of? Um, it's Gwendolyn Christie, Jessica Chastain... And there's another one that, that kind of looks similar to both of them. Christina Hendricks. Christina Hendricks. The know. one from Mad Men. Yeah. With the... Yeah. Um, I don't know how you would contain all of that in leather, but... Of course it. Yeah, but I, I think, like, to me it doesn't really... Like, obviously Doug Bradley's performance, like... There are a few horror icons where if you change the actor, it changes the character completely. Freddy Krueger and Robert England are the same thing. Tony Todd and the Candyman are the same thing. And, like, I think Doug Bradley and, like, Pinhead are synonymous with each other. um, As evidenced by Judgment, where they recast him and the guy who played him was fucking awful. 
Um, but yeah, I think if they're going to go in a new direction because they're trying to base the new film more on the original novella, I think it's a bold choice and I'd be really interested to see how they pulled it off. Yeah. I mean, as always, you've got all the idiots on the internet already. They're like, oh, they're going woke. Oh, it doesn't need to be a woman. And like so many people are like, you've clearly never read the original book. Yeah. Um, and like, it's it's interesting to kind of, to to go back to the source material, I think, and kind of try to reinvigorate the character with a different kind of person playing them. Because the thing is, after 10 movies, like, I think these things do need to be shaken up. And I think it's been long enough since we've had a Hellraiser movie. One that's... And this is going, like, straight to Hulu as well. So I'll be very interested to see how it plays out. Mm. But... Yeah, I... Uh, like... The the problem I have with the remaking now is I like this film because it's not too graphic, it's not too gory. And I feel like the problem that I'm going to have watching it now, if they were to make it today, is how gory and graphic it's going to be. Yeah, but the thing is, like, the guy who made it, who made The Night House and The Ritual, from what I know, The Ritual is a little bit gory because it's a creature film. But... The Night House isn't. The Night House, from what I've read, is a lot more psychological. Mm. So, yeah, it, just, it, it, it depends on whose hands it's in and what who the, who takes over the power of the script and things like that. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. But no, I'd, I'd probably give them both a go. I quite like the Cenobites. So yeah, because I know that for a while Clive Barker wanted to regain the rights because he wanted to remake his own movie, mm. uh, which I feel like happens all the time with Clive Barker. He's like, yeah, I made this movie a long time ago, and he's like, I don't. He's like, can I just can I just remake it, guys? And to be fair, like given the fact that this is the first movie Clive Barker made and he's not a director, I thought the actual direction in this movie was pretty good. It's pretty solid. I mean, especially when you hear him, like, it's so funny because you hear him in interviews and he's talking like how the cast and crew, he's like, he's like, I literally turned up on set and he's like, a lot of the cast and crew helped me make this movie. He said, because I didn't have a fucking clue what I was doing. And he was, he's been very honest about it, about the fact that he didn't know what he was doing or like he had reservations, but he was the one who was like, I want to make it because it's based on my own material. Um, But like, for you, how do you think the movie held up? Like, you watched it for the first time, like, nearly 30 years after it's come out. Well, at least 30 years after it's come out. Like, what did you think of the film? Did you think it's aged well? Did you, like, what were your main takeaways from it, watching it for the first time so soon after it came Like, uh, Not so soon, so late after it came out, sorry. Uh, yeah, um... I don't know, because the thing is, is the practical effects have held up quite well. Like, you can tell that they're old at this point, but they've held up quite well. The ending of this film has not held up as well, <laughs> but that's because that's animated. There's not practical effects. What? The monster? No, the final scene with Frank. What, when he gets ripped apart? Yeah. It's not practical effects. It is. No, it's not. It is. I'm almost positive that bit where they rip him apart is practical effects. They... I can tell you now. I, I literally read about it earlier. It is not. Because um... I thought that was like a mannequin and prosthetics they ripped apart. What, the Jesus wept bit? Are you talking about? Yeah, I might be wrong. It might not be that scene. But I read about it earlier. 
commented about the poor quality of the effects at the end of the movie clive barker has explained that due to a very limited budget there was no money left for fx to be done professionally after the primary filming instead barker and a greek guy animated these scenes over by hand over the single single weekend barker has also confirmed that he thinks the fx turned out very well considering the amount of alcohol the two consumed. Which scene is that, though? It just says towards the end of the film. It doesn't say what scene it is. Oh. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure the Jesus Wept scene is real. Maybe he's talking about that fucking dragon thing that turns up at the end. Oh, it will be, won't it? It'll be that bit. But I think there's a few other bits as well. Mm. But like the, the visual effects held up reasonably well Like for the time it was made and on the budget it was made. I quite like the monster thing that chases her through the hallway. Like the upside-down crab baby scorpion thing. Yeah. It's fucking weird. Um, so I quite like... I mean, you know I'm not, I love a practical effect. Mm-hmm. Practical effect is one of my favourite things because I think they age a lot better than animated effects and actual CGI effects. Yeah. Especially on movies from the 80s. Um... I forgot what the rest of the question was. I just started going on about the visual effects. I just was How's it held up? Yeah. Yeah, that was the question you asked me. Uh, <laughs> but no, I think it held up well. I think my main issue with this film is that it is very much a film of two halves and two very separate plots. Mm-hmm. And they don't really coincide well. Do you feel like it could have benefited from being longer? No. I think it could have benefited from being two separate films, <laughs> in all honesty. Fair and this isn't me shitting on it, because both, both halves of the film are really good. Yeah. They just seem very disconnected yeah. from each other. Apart from having the same characters, there's no there's no real, like, joint to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's my main issue with this film. But I think it held up well. I enjoyed it still. I will ask you the question that I ask you every time we watch a franchise. Mm-hmm. Has it made you want to go watch any more of them? Yes. I think this is one of the only two franchises now that I've said I would go and watch more of these films. The other one being The Evil Dead. Mm-hmm. I think that's it, isn't it? They're the only two that I was like, I would I would continue to watch this yeah. franchise. Yeah, I really, 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 I really, really, really would like to see more of it just to get more background on the Cenobite. It's more so... It's not even that I was like, this film was amazing. It's more that I'm like, this film has interested me and I now want to know more about the creatures that you've given me to work with because you didn't tell me anything in this film. Damn you to hell, Clive Barker. Yeah, because I think when we watched Candyman, you were like, I love Candyman, but fuck if I'm watching those other two movies. Yeah, because Candyman gives you everything you need to know Yeah. in the first film. The other two, you didn't need any sequels to that. It's no. completely superfluous. Well, the thing with like Hellraiser 2 is it... The Hellraiser 2, if you don't watch any of the others, at least watch the second one, because the second one gives you, like, the conclusion to, like, Kirsty's story and Julia's story. Like, it wraps everything up. Mate, I'll watch all fucking eight of them. Nah, man, you don't need to watch all ten of them. Ten of them? I'll watch all ten of them, fuck it. (laughs) Um, I really like the third one. The third one is my favourite. Always has been, because it's got that great fucking uh, church scene, which I love. I love, love, love that scene. Um... I've seen the first four and I bowed out after the first four um, and I've never really had any desire to go and watch the rest of them. But I am glad that like, I'm glad like these, see, this is the thing with movies like this where like that considered classics, but they're very much classics of their time. But then when they're like, you watch them with like a fresh perspective and fresh eyes and especially with someone new, you kind of sit there and go, 
I know that when I was 10 years old, I loved this movie and it was dope as fuck. But I don't know how someone who's like nearly 30 is going to react to it 30 years after it came out. It is a bit of a nerve wracking experience because you do kind of sit there and go, oh man, what if they secretly hate it? Um, but like, no, like, and I do think like the thing for you as well is I think if you looked at the other forms of media, like if you probably read like the book, you'd probably enjoy the book and maybe some of the comics. I don't know if I would because I've tried to read Clive Barker's work before and I wasn't overly fussed on his writing style. Mm-hmm. So, but the comic books I'd probably enjoy. Yeah. Because the comic books are very cool. Um, but yeah, he he's a fucking G. Like, I think Pinhead is one of one of the greatest horror icons of all time. And I think there's something like, and it's going to sound really weird to say this, I think there's something really tragic about Clive Barker's characters, which is what I said at the beginning of the episode. But there's also, he has this real, like, this real kind of, like, Edgar Allan Poe-esque kind of, like, gothic... Mm. See, I can't really say that about this character. Like, I I feel that way about Candyman. I feel that way about the the monsters of Nightbreed. (laughs) I can't really say that about Leather Daddy, Pinhead, because we don't learn anything about his character. And that really upsets me because he's probably the most interesting piece of this film. All of the Cenobites are. And even just visually and, like, the way they hold themselves... To say that they don't have a lot of lines, they're not in it for very long. They, the performance that is given by the actors portraying all of the Cenobites is fucking phenomenal because two of them don't talk at all. It's just the way they hold themselves, the way they move mm-hmm. is intimidating. And then between female Cenobite and lead Cenobite, the, the few lines we do get and the way the two of them interact with Kirsty and the way they move, the way they hold themselves is so interesting. Mm. But we learn literally nothing about them. Like, I know because of the internet, like, Elliot Spencer is a very sympathetic character. Um, but I, from watching this movie, I don't know that about him. Yeah. And I'd like to get to that. I think that's part of the reason why I would watch more of them, is because I want to get to that point of, like, getting to know the character of Pinhead. Yeah. Because I like him. And I think that's the thing as well, and I think that's why I said at the beginning of the episode that if this had stayed a standalone movie, it would have done these characters a massive disservice. Oh, huge. And I think that's why I'm happy that like the, the other two, at least the set, the like the first two sequels exist for that very reason. Because you and like I know sometimes people talk about like demystifying the devil and how like the more you find out about these characters takes their like power away and their essence and all of that stuff. And yeah, I think in certain cases that's true. Like, the more you find out about Freddy Krueger, the less scary he becomes. Like, same with Hannibal Lecter. The more Hannibal Lecter movies they made, the more, like, the less frightening he became. Mm. But I don't necessarily think that Pinhead is meant to be a frightening character. He is meant to be a character that you are kind of conflicted about. Because he's horrifying. He's horrifying, but, I, but he's also kind of like... I think that's the thing with all of Clive Barker's characters, though, is you are supposed to fear them to agree, to a degree, but you're supposed to sympathise yeah. with what led them to where they are now. Mm-hmm. Which I think is a beautiful way of writing monsters. Yeah. Personally. I think he... Well, he's he's created what is now two of my three favourite horror icons. Who's the third one? 
Ash. Aww. Love Ash. <laughs> um, but like Candyman and now Pinhead, um, because there's some, there's just something about the characters he's created that makes you want to know more about them intrinsically. And you're just like, I need to know who this person is and why they're doing this and what is the point behind everything. Like, mm. And I want to know more. And I think Clive Barker is really good at creating that thirst in a way, but not in a sexy way, but like you need to know more about this person. Yeah. Because you want to know what makes them tick and has made them into what they are now. Yeah, and I think that's like a, a beautiful thing. Like, again, like you look at his like... Even to even to a degree, when you look at the things that he didn't write necessarily, but like when you look at the toy range that he did, Clive Barker's Twisted Souls, because mm. um, I don't think he did the Oz ones. No, he didn't. He did, do the, the, Oz he did ones. the Twisted Souls ones. Yeah. And you look at the figures, and you look at the toys, and you look at them, and you're like, "This is a piece of plastic, but it's so well designed. This object, this toy, has a backstory, and I want to know the backstory. Mm. I want to know." what has led this creature. And, like, that's why, again, like we said about Nightbreed a couple of weeks ago when we covered that, we were like, the creatures of Midian, you want to know who, oh, they, yeah, know who, who they all are and things like that. And, again, with, like, Candyman, like, in the first Candyman movie, you don't really find out anything about Daniel Robitaille. You don't even find out his first name until the sequel mm. and what happened to him. Um, but you already... The weird, the weird thing is, the first time you see a Clive Barker character, so the first time you see Candyman or the first time you see Pinhead or any of the creatures of Nightbreed, they feel like from the minute you see them, like lived-in characters. Yeah. You feel like you have known this character for years, and that I think is a testament to how well well written they are, and how well chosen the actors are for the roles. Because you... Oh yeah, it's like using Candyman as a prime example. Tony Todd is Daniel Robitus. He is Candyman. And as much as I enjoyed Yaya Abdul Mateen, yeah, the second in the new one, and he was a great character. He was not Candyman. No. And nobody except Tony Todd, in my head, will be Candyman. And I think that was the masterstroke of the new Candyman movie, was not getting another actor to play Daniel Robitaille and getting it to be like a generational thing of like, here are multiple Candymen. And I think that was the genius thing. And I think that's the thing as well with like Hellraiser is, yeah, they can recast Hellraiser, like they can recast Pinhead now, but... I think going the female route and making Pinhead or lead Cenobite a woman or genderless, non-binary, however you want to go, freshens it up because they're not replacing Doug Bradley. It's a different... It's a different different iteration. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is really important, especially with characters like this, because they could have very easily gone, oh, grab... That man, he's tall and intimidating looking. Stick him in the Cenobite makeup. There we go, there's your new Hellraiser. But it's not. Yeah. Because, although unlike with Tony Todd as Candyman, we don't really see Doug Bradley's face as Pinhead. 
there's still something about the way Doug holds himself in the character that you'd immediately be able to tell, well, that's that's not Pinhead. That yeah. is not my Pinhead. Yeah. Um, and I think there's certain characters that are just... It, you, like, that is who they are. So, like, Freddy Krueger is Robert England. Yeah. Like, they've tried recasting him. Didn't work because... He is Robert England. Like, yeah. I'm sure if they were to leave it until we've not had a Freddy Krueger for, you know, a generation or so, we could make a Freddy Krueger for a whole new generation who don't yeah. really know the original. Because they tried to do it with the remake and recasting him was awful. Like, And it's like the same thing, like, Michael Myers, like, I'm probably going to get a lot of shit for this, but to me, Michael Myers and Jason, and I say this as a Jason guy, doesn't really matter who's under the mask. As long as they can hold themselves yeah. right. It does, yeah. Because there's been numerous different Jasons over the years. And numerous there? different Michael Myers. Yeah, because you never see them. I don't think it matters as much. As long as you find somebody who can hold themselves properly. And with Jason and Michael, it's slightly different to Pinhead. Because all they have to be is intimidating and big. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Pinhead, they need to be elegant and intimidating yeah and they need to give off this aura of you want to touch them but you're also terrified of what yeah. would happen if you did that and like which is a really weird sentence to say but like you look at Pinhead, especially in this film there's a part of you that goes oh i really want to get like in his space because yeah. i want to see up close what what all of that is but another part of your brain is going well that's a dumb fucking idea yeah don't do that <laughs> Yeah, no, I I agree a hundred percent, and I think, like, would you would you say that in the pantheon of horror icons, Pinhead's probably a little bit like underappreciated? Yeah. Like yeah. he he should be a bigger character than what yeah. he is. Yeah, but to be fair, because like I just said, I have I have exactly three horror horror icons I love, and all but one of them I don't think are appreciated anywhere near enough. Because Ash is held on that pedestal of its. Yeah, it's everybody Ash. fucking loves Ash. Yeah, whereas I feel like <coughs> both Candyman and Pinhead, neither of them really get the love they deserve. But I think part of that is because they're sympathetic characters. Neither Jason nor Michael are sympathetic. I also, and I think with this as well, it kind of leads to what I'm about to say, I think also holds true for both characters. Mm. I think... There is a universality to, like, a lot of horror icons. I think anybody from any walk of life can gravitate towards a horror icon. But I do think that there is a certain subculture that is gravitated possibly towards Pinhead. And obviously, with Candyman, it's a whole... He is an icon for an entire race of people. He is the representation for, like, African-Americans on screen who never had their own own icon for a very, very long time. Yeah, I mean... Which maybe he's... Not, no, I, want, I want to be clear, not specifically African-Americans. No. Black people yeah. in general, because not all black people are African-American. Yeah. Um, I was just paraphrasing what Jordan Peele said. Yeah. But I think maybe in those spaces, those two characters are much wider, and like much more widely appreciated, yeah. um, whereas maybe in the mainstream, not so much. Um, because they came in after, like, 
Jason, Freddy, Michael, Leatherface, Chucky had already blown up. See, I think I think part of it is that they do kind of fall into what I would refer to as minority character categories. Yeah. So Tony Todd, um, Candyman is black, and Pinhead is kind of he kind of falls into more of like the S and M goth subculture. Yeah. Easily, he falls very central into that kind of world. But I also think that a big part of it is that they are very sympathetic. Whereas you look at most horror villains, um, I mean, Jason got drowned and like his mum died, which is kind of sad, but we don't really talk about that anymore because now he just likes killing people. And Michael Myers is just evil. Freddie was potentially a paedophile. He likes killing people. Mm-hmm. Um, Chucky, he was a mass murderer. He became adult. He just likes killing people. Like, there's no real sympathetic parts of their character that you can go and look at and go, oh, that's really horrible. Like, I kind of get why you've gone down the route you've gone down. Whereas with Tony Todd and... Fucking Tony Todd. (laughs) With Candyman. In my head, it's just like... I feel like you're obsessed with Tony Todd. I fucking love Tony Todd so much. And I feel like I really want to meet him, but also I feel like I would be terrified just because it's Tony Todd. Um, Because Candyman, in my head, this is why no one else can play Candyman, because they're the same person. Um, And Pinhead, a super sympathetic character. It's like... Daniel Robitaille's story is heart-wrenching. When you find out what happened to him, it's so heart-wrenching. And it's the same thing they did with the newer film, um, with Yo-Yo Abdul-Mateen's character, is they made him sympathetic still. Mm -hmm. Because while he's not really the villain of the piece at any point, he does start to become the Candyman. They give him such a sympathetic story that your heart goes out to him yeah. As a character. Yeah. And it's so well done. I mean, I have issues with the candy, new Candyman movie, but his story arc is really well done. It's not, that's not one of them. That is not one of them. And it's the same with... Not so much in this film, because we don't find out a lot of the backstory, but from everything I know about the character of Pinhead and Elliot Spencer, he has a really sympathetic backstory that has led him to where he is. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's an important distinction to make, is like... You know, yes, these characters are villainous, but they weren't always villainous. They no, are like they have been pushed and shoved and cornered and collared into. They have also where almost they are now. like Shakespearean backstories. Yeah, they are. They're very. They are very much like they have a story, and I, I think a lot of horror icons and the big, the big five, shall we call mm-hmm. them? People like them because they're meaning mindless killers who just like murdering shit, and that's generally what makes a horror icon. And I think that's why characters like Candyman, why characters like Pinhead, and I'm sure there's others that we're going to come across in our journey of watching horror movies that'll be like these fall into very much the same sections because they have a backstory and an excuse and a reason and uh, well not an excuse but they have a reason of the why they've become what they've become. They're less exciting mm-hmm. as villains because neither of these two are mindless and I this is again going back to the greatness of the way Clive Barker, Clive Barker wrote his villains they're not just killing mindlessly for the sake of killing people there's reasons for what they're doing yeah and I I fully agree and I think like especially with with Pinhead and the Cenobites there's like an order to what they're doing it's not necessarily like in the later movies he does kind of become a bit of just like a I'm showing up to kill people slasher villain like run of the mill slasher villain 
Um, the, Which is very disappointing. Because of the fucking Weinsteins. Um, but, I feel like sentence, I guess, uttered a lot. Fucking Weinsteins. Um, but he's got a job to do. They have a code. They're mm. following, like, the laws of, like, whatever their higher power is. Like, he's like, only... like, someone fucks with the box, you kill yeah. them. That is your job as the Cenobite, okay? Everyone agreed? Excellent. Say with Candyman, someone summons you in a mirror, you go and kill them. It's your job, understood? Excellent. Like, there's every time someone dies, there's a reason behind yeah. it. It's because they fucked the fuck up. Also, I love the fact that, like, on a side note, I love the fact that Danny Filth from Cradle of Filth um, is such good friends with um, Doug Bradley that he's appeared on several Cradle of Filth records. And on Midian, he gets him in one of the songs on her Ghost in the Fog. He says one of Pinhead's lines. He says, "No tears, please. It's a waste, it's a waste of, of good, good suffering." suffering. Yeah. And then, spoiler alert, because this will be out before the new Cradle album comes out. On the new Cradle of Filth record, there's a song called "Sisters of the Mist," which is the third part of the her Ghost in the Fog trilogy. And I was listening to it the other day, and he I can't remember what the lines are because I've only listened to the record once, but he says more of Pinhead's lines in the song, Aww. which I think is, even though the songs aren't connected to Hellraiser, I love the fact that he's managed Reference to kind of work those like, yeah. as like little Easter eggs for the fans, like the crossover fans of both things, which I thought I think is really, really cool. Um, but yeah, I guess we should probably wrap this up because... Otherwise, it's just going to be like you going on about fucking Leather Daddy for another six hours. Yeah. Um, so And Candyman, because I talk about <laughs> Candyman a lot on this fucking um, episode. So, in summation, your initial thoughts, lasting thoughts, and your score. Okay. Uh, I was really excited to watch it. I'm glad I did watch it as well, because while it is very much a film of two halves, I think it's a good film. And my score, I'm going to give it a three and a half, which is quite low, I know, for me saying how much I loved a film. But I'm scoring it on the fact that I don't feel like it is a cohesive film in any way, mm-hmm. shape or form. But it's getting points for A, Pinhead, B, Clive Barker, and C, those fucking effects. <laughs> I just, I really love practical effects. I wish more films would follow through with practical. And and my last question for you, Sid, as you seem to be like torn between the two characters, which character would you rather go on a date with, Candyman or Pinhead? Candyman. And where do you think you guys would go? I reckon he'd take you to like a fucking honey making factory. Nah, bees have got some like bad connotations for him. I feel like we. I feel like if if, if I was to go on a he date, he is the Lord with of Candyman, the bees. He's like bzz. he is, but also bad. He's not got the greatest past mm. history with bees, baby. True. I feel like he. I feel like Candyman would take you out proper. You reckon? I feel like yeah. I feel like he would take you out proper. You'd go out for dinner. Go for a walk in a park. He'd maybe like paint your picture. Maybe yeah, he's an artist. Could you, you, that's what we could do for our date actually. If I had a Candyman, we could go to art classes together. What, maybe what, an art gallery. What, what still life? Yeah, yeah, new painting. You know. I mean, fair. Fair. Now yeah, just because I feel like Pinhead would be a bit too much. Which I love him. Like Pinhead would be a bit too much, and he'd want to go to like uh, the torture garden or something on a date, and I'd be like, I'm not really up for that. For who doesn't know that, by the way, the torture garden is an S and M club in London. <laughs> it is. 
Just because I realised I said it and I'm like, we have listeners who are not in the UK. I think it's a franchise, though. I think they have them globally. I don't know. I've only ever heard about the one in the in London. Um, I have a couple of friends who go to the one in London quite yeah, a lot. Yeah, I know. If you've they, been to London. They host parties there and stuff. But I think it is like a global brand. So I think they have places all I over. I have no idea. Um, yeah, I could be wrong, though. I have absolutely no idea. I don't know a lot about it apart from it exists. It's in London and I know someone who models there every now and then. I'd quite like to go on a night out with Pinhead. Oh, yeah. I'd love to go get drunk with Pinhead. But I think that I think. But the... I feel like he's the kind of person you'd wind up doing absinthe at six in the morning and regretting all of your. I life was literally just about to say that he would take you to like, I reckon Pinhead's into slam poetry. <laughs> oh god! So you'd end up going to like a slam poetry evening with him, then he would like buy you absinthe, and then you would end up just like in some like weird place that you have no idea how you got there. You'd either end up like sneaking into like a fucking torture museum or you'd end up like riding roller coasters with him i'm not really sure where the night would go but i feel like i feel like he's one of those people if you were to go out with him you'd have to go out on a group night out because i feel like if you went on a date with pinhead it would be a very wordy date he would just be like sitting there be like oh man like it is so tough being a priest of hell like this guy opened the box and we promised him exquisite pain. And then, then, like, we've only just had the chains oiled. And, like, yeah, just, it would be, like, on and on and on. it would be a lot. But, no, I feel, I feel like, yeah, a group night out with Pinhead, though, would be, it would be a lot. Like, it's the kind of night you'd finished it coked off your teeth. You've definitely done ecstasy, maybe some speed. And you are drinking absinthe at six in the morning, regretting every choice that has led you to this exact moment. And at least three people have died. Yeah. Like, there's no way all of you survive a night out with Pinhead. Whereas at least I feel like with Tony Todd, it'd be a pretty chill night. He probably just he probably just wants to hang out. I feel like people don't really talk to him. They just, like, summon him and then he's like, I've got to kill you now. Whereas I feel like sometimes he just wants someone to sit and talk to. I do feel like, also, Pinhead is kind of one of those guys, like, if you went to a gig with him, like, if you went to go see Cradle of Filth or, like, Sisters of Mercy or something like that. Oh, he's the tall guy who's in the way, definitely. But... Uh, excuse me but he's also the guy who kind of would like Patrick Bateman the whole situation but yes so when uh, Sisters of Mercy released their first album I found that their music was a little bit too unpolished but by the time they got to releasing more and Dr. Jeep and things like that you know when No Time to Cry came out that song really spoke to me because I also have no time for tears mm. <laughs> I just think it would be like oh, like he would like properly like it would he would so what you're saying is that you are Pinhead. Yeah, I, I reckon <laughs> Pinhead is a real gatekeeper-y hipster fuck. Um, oh, probably. Whereas, like, Candyman's really bougie and really arty, but he would take you for a night out in New Orleans. You'd listen to some jazz. You'd look at some good art. He'd, like, you know, take you for gumbo or some shit. Like... I'd be up for that. Yeah, I'd go on a date with um, Candyman. Yeah. There you go. So, yeah, I'm really glad I really glad you like this movie because it's one of those movies like while I do feel like this might be the weakest movie in the original franchise of the original 3, I do think that the franchise gets better. I think the characters are great and I do think the movie holds up really well. I'm giving it a 3 purely for the same reasons as what you did. Like I do think that there are parts of this movie that don't necessarily gel with the other half. But I do think that, you know, it is a good movie and it introduces us to one of the greatest, yes. like, 
horror icons this of all time. This is also where you need to start preparing for me ordering all of the um, Pinhead stuff online and <clears throat> just our house being covered by Leather Daddy. I don't think I'd mind that, to be honest. I'm going to get um, a Candyman poster to go in the house as well. Nice. But yeah, so that's our thoughts on Hellraiser. And Lee's secondary thoughts on Candyman. <laughs> um, we're going to be back. We're going to be back next week. We're going to be dropping... So we have got an episode dropping this Friday, which is going to be on our favourites. So you'll get, you guys are going to get a lot of content, I warn you now. You're going to get a lot of content on the 15th of October. So this Friday we're doing a 5x5 on our favourite subgenres. However, that may be moved to Wednesday. So you may get a 5x5 two days early because we are dropping on the 15th. Um, our review of the new Ice Nine Kills record, to the Silver Scream 2, colon, welcome to... Yeah, on the 15th of October, when the album comes out. Is that a Friday? Yes, a Friday. Yeah. So we, it looks like we are probably going to move our favourite subgenres 5x5 five five to the Wednesday, just so that the, the episode's got a bit of room to breathe. On that Friday, we are going to substitute it with our review of the new Ice Nine Kills record, The Silver Scream 2, Welcome to Horrorwood. And, depending on how I feel about it after I come out, we are going to do a... I will probably do a mini review. I was going to say, of, I like how you said we. I ain't watching it. <laughs> probably do a mini review of Halloween Kills. But that weekend we are away. So next weekend we will be away for our wedding anniversary. But next Monday, which is the 18th, which is our actual wedding anniversary, we'll be dropping our episode on Psycho, the original. Um, because. Um, yeah. We're not doing the remake. <laughs> no, we're not doing the weekend remake. Um, and then the following Monday is Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. But also, excitingly, that weekend. In which we would normally record that, so we have to record it early. My dad's here. Yay! She's watching with your dad. We should get your dad on. My dad hates horror films, so that's not going to happen. Hey, up when geezer turned up with nice for fingers. Ah. That is the worst. <laughs> so my dad is from New Yorkshire. Just as a, that's that's what accent that was supposed to be. <laughs> Apologies to the guys from. Is it the horror bandwagon? No. No, the horror project. The horror project. Who are, are also from Yorkshire? They're from Lancashire, I think. <laughs> from, up that way. Up that way. So if, for, like, sorry for, for what Simon just. did. Phil and Laura represent um, but yeah anyway so take care of yourselves find us in the usual places S-I-M-A-H-F pod on in- Twitter so I'm a horror fan Instagram Tumblr come find us say nice things say mean things do whatever you want um, we will be back next week uh, with Psycho peace peace